Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and we have got uh, a lot to do today. In spite of no hockey, we will have a good uh, run-through of some farm system uh, stuff and, and some draft questions. Prashant, how you doing? Doing pretty well, Max. About as good as you can be. Uh, day six of, of, I guess, this isolation quarantine stuff that's been going on. And so those of you that are quarantining, thank you for, for tuning in. And, and uh, you know, I'm just here enjoying the day as best as you can. I was thinking about the other day, and I want to put this question to you. What, what do you, like, notice most about what changes in your day-to-day with, with no sports anywhere on the on TV, on the Internet, anything like that? You know, it's, uh, for me, like, when I come home from work, uh, usually on Red Wings game days, like, I'm kind of prepping everything. I'm going, all right, this is when I need to get dinner done because this is, you know, when the Wings game is going to happen. And now, like, those evenings are kind of just wide open. Uh, there's not really a lot of planning things around sporting events, which is how I typically would utilize my weekends or, or the days when there were we- Wings games is I would kind of plan my day around it. And now there's really no event, so I'm, I'm kind of just making stuff up as I go along in the afternoons and evenings. And just it's kind of made for, I guess, a nice change of pace, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you, except for I'm not feeling that it's nice. <laughs> I, I realized very quickly... How much of my days were built around the sports clock, basically? So even beyond just like making sure I'm, you know, at home with dinner done and potentially eaten by seven, or uh, you know, on a night the Red Wings aren't playing, obviously on nights they are, I'm, I'm not even home. But um, you know, obviously I'm a sports consumer too. So uh, the thing that struck me the most is how much I will keep time, like in the midst of a game, where it's like, yeah, like I need to be, you know doing this by the time the second period's over or whatever, by the time it's, you know, the, the seventh inning stretch, something like that. Uh, my day feels very long right now, and it feels very randomly, like, structured. Like, some some spurts of it feel like they, they go by very quickly, but then, you know, there's some really long, like, late afternoons into evenings where normally that feels like the quickest part of the day because you're rushing to get everything you need to done before puck drop or first pitch or something like that. So um, that has been a really interesting thing that I have noticed. I just kind of wanted to put it out there because I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there feeling sort of similarly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a wild situation and it's, it's uncharted territory. I think for me it's just been super weird because, uh, you know, I just moved into my new house this weekend, so it's basically – you know, unpacking, loading, things like that. The minutes have just flown by. And so I think, you know, one of the reasons why it's been a decent change of pace is I haven't really had time to even do anything, even if there were sports or anything like that, because everything has been consumed by, you know, you come home, you unpack stuff at the house. When you're at work, we're doing emergency staffing planning and and all this kind of uh, stuff at the hospital and trying to make sure everybody's set up. And so minutes just zip by. I look at the clock and hours are gone. And so it's not like I've even had time to really sit down and, I guess, debrief or relax to even think about, all right, I'm missing sports at this moment because this is a void in time that I need to fill. And and I haven't really come across that, but I know a lot of people have had very different experiences over the last week. Yeah, and just talking to some people, you know, yesterday I was on the phone for for much of the day. Um, you know, I think that seems to be the the general vibe around the hockey community, at least the people that I've talked to too. A lot of kind of boredom, a lot of you know, people starting to get restless, and we're really only a week into this. 
Yeah. One week in and potentially a couple more to go, depending on how everything uh, shakes out with the restrictions that are being put in place over the next, uh, uh, you know, few days here. Yeah, but one advantage of uh, being able to get some people on the phone is we're able to get a little bit of uh, of insight and therefore a little bit of something to talk about for everybody. So I, I had a story go up a couple hours ago breaking down the late season risers in the Red Wings farm system. Uh, anything stand out to you in there, or do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that. I think one guy that you know you've been really high on for I guess the last little bit here is Albert Johansson. I think a couple episodes back you made a mention that. He was the guy that was kind of, I guess, most affected by all of the shutdowns of the leagues is is because he was kind of cruising at the last little bit. And, you know, Sean Horkoff had a couple of nice things to say about him. But I was curious how you thought Horkoff's opinion of him lined up with what you had noticed over the last, uh, you know, couple of weeks. Yeah, no, it, it's a good question. Um, essentially... I haven't been able to watch Albert a whole lot. So one of the real valuable things about this is being able to talk to someone like Horkoff is they've, you know, they've seen it a little more. Whereas you can kind of track the, uh, the stats and the highlights that pop up on Twitter. Uh, you know, for me, what, what put Johansson on my radar a little bit is he finished his season with five points in four games in the SHL, uh, which is a pretty stark jump. I mean, he's a guy who, for his season had 13 points in 42 games. So when you have that kind of stretch, that to me screams, hey, did something click? And then you go and you line it up and he's getting more ice time. So that kind of adds a little piece to the puzzle. I mean, by by the time it was all said and done, he finished third among defensemen uh, under 20 in scoring in that league behind Nils Lundqvist, who was a first-round pick in 2018 for the Rangers, and Victor Suderstrom, who obviously was a first-round pick in 2019. He finished ahead of Philip Broberg in scoring. So obviously, you know, those are kind of ticky-tack little stats that, you know, can a couple points either way can can alter some stuff. Uh, but I think that's pretty notable. And so talking to Horkoff, you know, the things that, that I – was able to glean from that. Number one, they think his skating is absolutely elite, uh, which is an important distinction. You you want the guys that you are um, drafting and who you are developing to have some kind of carrying trait or some elite trait that you can really rely on that's going to not only get them to the NHL, but also, you know, get them um, to, to have real success. They're, they're, it's going to separate them once they're there. Uh, so, you know, Horkoff's impression was a kind of a blend of, of confidence growing for Albert and, uh, and the ice time, the opportunity, the power play time clicking, those two things kind of happened in concert and that's where you see the late season surge. Uh, what I thought was interesting is, you know, the, the idea of this is a guy who they want to put on some weight in the gym this summer, uh, some muscle, obviously they want him to fill out. I'm curious, this is going to be something across the Red Wings farm system. How are guys going to make the needed physical progress they need to make without really being able to be in a quote-unquote gym at least for a little while here? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be really, really challenging. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, some of these guys may have access to either private or or personal gyms at home. And, And while that offers you some capacity to do stuff, it certainly doesn't offer you the same capacity as... Uh, you know, a professional hockey team's uh, facilities. So I think that'll certainly be a challenge. But, you know, I think uh, a lot of what you've been saying, a lot of what Horkoff's been saying about Johansson, I think Red Wings have, fans have to be really, really excited about him. I think if you take the Swedish Hockey League, the top league over there, uh, and you look at the guys who are under the age of 20 in their first year after their draft, uh, there's not a lot of guys that have really done better 
than Albert Johansson as a defenseman. I mean, he's 12th all time in those, in that kind of category of defensemen who are in their first year after their draft, but are still under the age of 20. Uh, he's 12th in points, um, in that group. And if you look at the names around him, it's guys like Eric Brandstrom, who's a highly touted prospect, uh, for the Ottawa Senators. You've got a former Red Wing up there and Frederick Olsson, who, uh, you're throwing it way, way back, but Freddie Olison was on the Red Wing Stanley Cup team in 2002. You know, Soderstrom's only a couple of spots ahead of him. Uh, but another name that's right around him is, is Eric Carlson, uh, who's playing with Furlunda, who had 10 points in his first uh, first year out after the draft. And so these are guys that are all right around the level of production that Johansson's had. And, and that's not to say that Albert Johansson is going to go and be one of those players. He played on a really good team. You know, there are other guys around him like Bo Erickson, David Runblad, Tommy Ward, guys who didn't end up panning out in that same fashion. But it is exciting that in his first year, he has been able to have a good impact at the SHL level, the, a top professional league, and arguably one of the strongest leagues outside of North America, right up there with the KHL uh, and Liga in Finland. So I think... You have to be excited at how this guy has progressed and, and really if he's able to add the muscle, uh, in the gym, however he finds a way to do that, I think he's a guy that could be a potential difference maker down the road. Yeah, he's got some pedigree too. I think his dad played in the NHL. Um, I think he, he's the guy who at the draft, um, Hawken Anderson was talking about, you know, his dad is 6'3", both of his brothers are 6'3". They're hoping there's some growing, uh, left in him. So that's another thing to kind of watch is that he could continue to get um, physically just taller. You mentioned the point about the quality of team, and that's something that I always think is so interesting because you're right. It can inflate scoring production. But what it also does that I think goes the other way and maybe almost balances it out, Farstad's second best team in the SHL, the fact that he was able to earn a really solid role on that team getting into like the 14 15 16 minutes a night by the end of season that's hard too and that actually tells you something that he was able at such a young age to carve out that kind of role on a really good team yeah i completely agree there like the role that he's earned is certainly deserved and that's certainly telling of how good of a player uh, he really is i think it's a little bit of a balance when we don't have some of our more advanced metrics uh, that we use on yep. the nhl side like goals above replacement some of the Corsi and expected goal stats, when we don't have those in place, you have to be a little bit wary about point totals simply because when you think of things like the secondary assist or even a primary assist, if, if Albert Johansson moves the puck up to one of his good forwards and that guy goes and makes a bunch of moves and scores the goal, well, Johansson's going to get a point for that. And, and by virtue of being on a good team, there's a, there's a chance his point totals are inflated. So I think you do have to couch uh, all of the analysis surrounding his point totals with that aspect. But all that being said, the fact that he was able to earn a solid role on a good team in the top Swedish hockey league, uh, that definitely tells you something about the player. Yep. Now, obviously, he wasn't able to make the uh, World Junior team this year for Sweden. That was a pretty strong Swedish blue line, uh, but nonetheless, he wasn't on it. So, obviously, worth tempering. You know, you're not pumping the brakes. None of us are pumping the brake or are, uh, you know, hitting the gas and saying this is the next Carlson. But worth pumping the brakes, and we'll see what happens next year. I mean, I think his stat line uh this year was pretty similar to Lundqvist's last year, Nils Lundqvist, and Lundqvist shot up the prospect rankings. I don't even think he was in Corey's preseason uh, ranking entering the season and was like right next to Joe Valeno. 
by the midseason addition. So uh, he's a guy that could be a riser if he's able to bring this into next season. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think he's a guy to keep your eyes on, depending on if he stays over in Sweden, which I suspect will be the case, versus uh, moving elsewhere. Yep. Uh, next guy on that list was Chase Pearson, who you know I'm sure will will we'll draw some laughs from our audience. Who knows that I have thought quite a bit of Chase Pearson for a while, uh, but he finished the season really strong. Eight points in his last 12 games, uh, and really what I learned talking to Horkoff was was that was very much uh, not a coincidence. They they sat Pearson down with about a month left in the season and thought he had been playing just okay. They thought there was more in there. And as Horkoff put it, he responded, and he was he was a more offensive player, created more for himself, played harder, more energetic, uh, and they thought that you know all of that translated to the production that he ended up putting up. I think it's interesting to see someone like Pearson, who you know he's ultimately still an AHL rookie. He's older than someone like Joe Valeno, but he's still kind of in his first real you know full season in the AHL. Um, what are the things that take the most time to transition? And I, it makes sense to me that creating scoring chances for yourself uh, would get just way harder in the AHL than it would have ever been in college. Yeah, I completely agree. And also, I, I have to conveniently note that you have Chase Pearson listed ahead of Joe Valeno, and I'm not saying that you went in alphabetical order here because uh, you definitely put Chase Pearson intentionally ahead of Joe Valeno there. That being said... <laughs> I uh, did not. I didn't put it in any order. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I do think he's had a really solid season. I mean, he's never really been a a high-scoring player. I think his best year in the NCAA, he was... He was close to a point per game, but at that point, you know, that was his sophomore and, and junior seasons. Um, I don't think he's ever really been a dominant scoring force. So to see him be able to turn on the scoring a little bit when Grand Rapids was needing to make that playoff push, I mean, you have to recognize the guy is still quite young. Um, he'll be 23 later this year. He's certainly a guy that deserves a shot at a full-time roster spot uh, in the NHL next year, depending on you know, what the Red Wings choose to do with some of their restricted free agents. I mean, guys like Christopher N., you have to wonder if Chase Pearson can give you at least as much uh, of the defensive ability while having some more scoring upside than, than N. Now, N obviously scored similarly uh, to, to Pearson in, in prior seasons, so that's that's uh, it's not to say that Pearson's scoring will translate, but he's a guy that I'd like to see get a shot in that fourth-line role, whether that's on the wing or at center, because I do think he has the, the right skills to be useful to the Red Wings. Yeah, I think uh, Anna's a better skater, but I think Pearson may be a little better on the puck. So that's one of the kind of the major differences between those two guys. Wouldn't surprise me if Pearson starts the season again next year in Grand Rapids, but I think he's one to, to look out for for a call up certainly um, if if the the occasion arises. And I think you could say something similar for Joe Valeno, who we should just get to him right now. I did not mean to like these are not ranked; these are just kind of in the order that I that I asked about him, um, but. You know, Valeno, to his credit, like like I wrote, there was not a lot of room for him to technically rise up the prospect list. He was already the number two prospect, and he stays there. But uh, he had a really strong second half in general, and, and he finished with, you know, a, some decent scoring. I think everyone saw the, the goal that he scored uh, a couple weeks back uh, against San Antonio, where he really took it from, from his own uh, defensive corner behind the net brought it up ice, fought off a four-checker, made a pass, got it back, and scored. Really nice 200-foot play, the, pretty much the definition of a 200-foot play. Uh, and I thought, to me, that was worth digging in a little bit to what the Red Wings have seen 
the growth out of him. I think, you know, the, the point that Horkoff made is, yeah, the production was low the first half of the season. That sometimes happens when guys dig in uh, to really try to improve their, their defense in the short run. So uh, maybe that's the reason. But ultimately what Horkoff said is he, he thought Valeno started to feel more comfortable and really created a ton of scoring chances, which that's a really strong, that's about as good a sign as, as the Red Wings could have hoped for from Valeno. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were looking for Valeno's scoring to translate more than it, than it really did this season, just given the big numbers that he put up in the, in the queue in his, uh, last season there, uh, where he actually was, you know, the scoring leader in that league ahead of Alexi Lafreniere. Uh, who's projected to be the top pick this year. I think the big thing here is obviously this was a huge step up in the level of competition for him. He certainly took a while to adjust, as as Horkoff mentioned. And, and so for him to be able to put that game together, for him to start shooting the puck a little bit more, for him to start playing with the puck uh, a little bit more, I think all of that is exciting uh, for Red Wings fans. I still think you have to temper your expectations here in terms of uh, what he's going to be at the NHL level. I mean, when you look at guys who are in their second year out from the draft and, and are playing in the AHL, uh, there's a lot of guys that scored, you know, two, three times as much as Valeno did this season. And, and that's, that's yeah. notable. That's, that's, that's important to say. This is not a guy that is likely that to come out and be your number one center or even uh, a high end number two. You're probably still looking at him with the best upside being in that middle six role, potentially in that third line spot uh, to hold down the fort, but as a guy that can play on both sides of the puck really, really well. And I think that's ultimately the development the Wings are looking for here. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have always wanted to dream on Joe Valeno being like another Dylan Larkin. And, you know, I certainly understand good skater, has some some really strong work ethic uh, and some offensive skill. I understand why they kind of wanted to make that comparison, make that point. It was just never really fair to Valeno to expect that out of him, right? So, he, yeah, he put up big numbers in the queue last year. Um, he's still a guy, though, who I think is going to be at his best if he can have a season more like what his second half this year was. Create a lot, certainly, absolutely. That's part of his game is creating offense. Um, but the real value he's going to give you is not as a one-dimensional offensive player. It's going to be in a two-way role where, yeah, that probably does mean that you're, you're a third-line center, maybe a second-line center. Uh, but if you can be a really good third-line center, a really good second-line center, who can play defense and score, like that's how you actually build a championship team. It's not just all offense players, right? Yeah, it's guys that are able to do both things for you. I think it's you never want to make trade-offs here. You don't want to take the all-offense guy who doesn't play any defense. You don't want to exactly. take the, the all-defense guy who doesn't play any offense. You're looking for guys that are able to impact the game on both sides of the puck. And if, if Valeno can be that kind of player... Uh, for the Red Wings and be able to hold down that third line spot. Uh, I think that's going to be a useful player for the Red Wings. I think it's just important to, to understand that, you know, as you and I have laid out the, the foundation of this Red Wings rebuild moving forward, Valeno's the guy that's likely going to slot in on the third line. He is not going to be the guy who's going to slot in on the, on the second line and give you that high-end scoring. He's not going to be the guy that's going to be a first-line center for you. So there are still major, major holes from an elite talent standpoint uh, that you're missing, but Valeno is the kind of guy that can be a useful, productive player in the NHL because he's able to impact both sides of the puck. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. The next guy is a guy who I was trying to decide if, if I should include him here because statistically he doesn't kind of have the same 
late season like surge or whatever so much as, as some of the other guys. But Gustav Berglund is a guy who the Red Wings drafted in the sixth round, and I think he caught some people's eyes this year. Uh, and one of the big reasons was not really to do necessarily with his stat line, uh, but just the fact that uh, he really matured a little bit this year. He started, as, as Horkoff put it, figured out how good he was and the physical tools he had, uh, and then the, there was an increase in motivation. So it's a player who has a lot going for him. He's a six foot two right shot defenseman who can skate well. Uh, they like his physicality and his range. So and his shot. So that's uh, not a bad starting place. Now he's still a six round pick, but I think this is a guy who's kind of put himself a little bit more on the radar this year. Yeah, I mean Berglund's a guy that when you know when you draft those guys in the in the sixth round again, you're you're throwing a dart at the dartboard. Uh, but you're blindfolded and you're kind of hoping it lands on the bullseye. And, and, you know, it's, it's difficult to say what he's going to be or what he's going to be become, but I think you have to be encouraged that he made a lot of steps forward. He was able to get some time in the SHL this year, although he didn't really get a lot of minutes. He, he got eight games in, uh, wasn't able to get on the score sheet. Um, but back in the, in the Swedish Junior League, he was able to have a successful, uh, season, I think he did take some steps forward. I think he's a guy that you're playing the long game with. You're talking about a guy who potentially, if he does get to the NHL level, it's going to be four or five years, and there's going to need to be that patience with it. Um, he's going to have to progress slowly. You can definitely see how he's on a different track uh, than what Albert Johansson is, who's, again, second-round pick playing um, uh, in the SHL, already looking um, like a good skating defenseman. I think Berglund's got a long way to go, but he's made a lot of steps this year. Yep. And then the last guy was Keith Petrozelli. Uh, I'll let you carry the conversation here, but Petrozelli really did kind of have a bounce back. Nine, 920 save percentage this year after a 904 the year before. Yeah, Petrozelli's a guy that when he was drafted, uh, you know, a couple years back, he was thought to be the second best goalie in that draft. And, and for the Wings to be able to get him late in the third round, uh, he was a guy that, I was very excited for it because the Wings, you know, really needed a, a goaltending prospect. They didn't have anybody, um, you know, really in the system outside of Philip Larson. Larson hadn't really emerged um, at that point. And Petruzzelli was a big guy. He's 6'5", 180 pounds. Uh, and he was looking like he had all the tools to, to put the game together. He had a couple of years where he really struggled after the draft, um, including his freshman year in the NCAA was not Great. He he had a sub-900 save percentage, really struggled to put it together. Sophomore year wasn't much better, although he got a little bit on the right track, and so he kind of fell off everybody's radar. But this year as a junior, he's he's been outstanding. 34 games, he's got a two, 2.01 goals against average, 920 save percentage, looked really, really sharp. Um, you know, I think over the last 10 games of the season, he, he only gave up more than two goals once, had a couple of shutouts in there. Um, you know, he looks really, really good. And I think he's a guy with Philip Larson struggles. He's a guy that could push, uh, for an AHL job next season. Cause again, finishing his junior year, a lot of these guys tend to turn pro, sign their entry level contracts. So it wouldn't surprise me to see Petruzzelli uh, push Larson for, for a job in Grand Rapids given Larson's struggles this season. I also think, though, if there should be any lesson from the Larson experiment, it's that it's not e- always easy to just jump up uh, from college hockey into 
the NHL or the AHL, I should say. I think that it's a situation where if Philip Larson, who had a better season last year, uh, struggled, maybe fair to say that you know he's he's not just going to jump up and and do much much better right away. So I'm curious to see number one, does Petrozelli sign? I, I would think as a junior that would make some sense, but I I don't know at this time if that's if that's what'll happen. Um, and then number you know number two. Where does he land? Like, would they almost, after seeing what happened with Larson this year, would they almost just start him in the ECHL? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Larson's, uh, you know, development path was a little bit different. He only got one year in the NCAA with how he went, although, again, he, cause he's one draft class ahead of, uh, Keith yeah. Petruzzelli. He's 2016 draft, Petruzzelli's 2017 draft. I do wonder if, if Petruzzelli getting multiple years in the NCAA, which is arguably, uh, a stronger league than what most of Larson's development track was, which was, you know, playing in the Swedish Junior League, the Super Elite, then playing in the USHL um, in what was a relatively down year that year, and then playing um, one year at the NCAA level with the University of Denver. I wonder if Petrozelli might be better set up. I also wonder if at his size, um, his technique, uh, I think the technique is ultimately what's going to dictate between these two who's able to be more successful. But I, I wouldn't surprise me, and I don't think it would be wrong to actually give Petruzzelli the, the reins in the ECHL and if you start with Larson in the AHL, and then if you run into troubles, you swap them out. I think a lot of NHL teams have not utilized the ECHL as a development league as much as they should. I think really Toronto is the, the organization that's started to do a better job of it. I think Carolina's doing a better job of it. Uh, of late, but I think teams can do a much better job utilizing the ECHL for development, and maybe this is a scenario where you get your goalies in. Yep. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about before we move on, uh, Moritz Sider, obviously not a riser. He has been the one prospect all along. He, in fact, did not finish the season incredibly well because he wasn't playing much at the end of the season with an injury. He did get a couple points in his final two games, but but really the thing that stood out to me is the Red Wings are pretty happy with where his offensive game is at right now. Um, he's learning, they think, what he can get away with and what he can't, uh, and showing some confidence with the puck. And I think when you add that to what we know is the foundation of Sider's game, which is strong physical hockey, that's a very good sign. Another one with more excited that this is turning out to be a player the Red Wings can build around. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all on the more Sider train. I think I'm really excited to see him in the NHL, and and frankly, he should be day one a lock for a roster spot in Detroit. And you you let him have a run, you let him grow there because he's not really going to get. Uh, that much more out of the AHL at this point. I think he's gone there. He's proven that he is a he's an excellent defenseman. He's scoring uh, more than I think a lot of people anticipated. So he's the guy definitely to watch. Yeah, I mean he was playing 24 minutes a night as an 18 year old in that league. I don't know how much uh, how much more you could have possibly asked for from him in his uh, his first year as a North American pro. Yeah, he's a guy where I think if you bring him up to the uh, NHL level, I would pair him with Danny DeKaiser. Uh, simply because of what DeKaiser's been able to do from a steady defensive back-end standpoint and let Sider kind of have his ability to move with the puck, uh, utilize his skating, utilizes his good first pass to get out of the zone and let him play a little bit more physical. You kind of think all the way back to, um, you know, when Nick Lindstrom, uh, when Nick Lindstrom um, came up and played his rookie season in, in Detroit, and, and he was paired with the Beast. Uh, he's paired with Brad McCrimmon. So 
and in that um, pairing, Lidstrom was allowed to skate the puck. He was allowed to move. He was allowed to be all around the ice because he knew McCrimmon really had his back uh, on the defensive end, and I think that would be a good scenario for Sider moving into the NHL. Yep, not a bad idea at all. And I mean, obviously that's, that's gonna put him in, in the tough minute situations you expect from him right away. And, uh, you know, I, I'm in agreement. I think that'd be a natural fit. Yep. All right. Uh, you wanna lead us into our next segment? Yeah, so, you know, we're talking about a lot of the guys who are the prospects. Um, now we should really shift gears and talk about who the wings could add to their system. Obviously the NHL draft is, is yet to come. The NHL draft lottery is yet to come. And, Given that we don't really know much about the playoff structure, we don't even know what the lottery is going to look like. Uh, but assuming everything goes as was initially intended um, at the start of the season, I figure there's a couple of important questions we could tackle regarding the Red Wings draft strategy as well as uh, where certain players should fall out. Uh, so, Max, you know, one question I'm going to throw to you is uh, when you look at a lot of these mock drafts, you see guys – so you say, all right, it's Alexi Lafreniere, it's Quentin Byfield, and then three through seven tends to be a jumble. Who should actually be three, in your opinion? I'm going to say Tim Stutzel. Um, I know you'll have a different opinion here, but I think everything that I've heard about Stutzel out of Mannheim just has me pretty convinced that this is a guy who not only has the physical abilities, obviously the skating stands out a ton, uh, but also kind of the the mental toolkit to really succeed, to really you know lock in right away, compete hard, and be a complete not just offensive player. Um, I have heard a lot of great things about Stutzel, and to me, he's he's your number three, and I would say probably um, I, it wouldn't stun me if he challenged at some point for number two, though. Obviously, you know, Byfield at this point probably still holding on to that spot. Yeah, I mean, Stutzel is a guy that you, you look at, you look at his stats in the DEO, which is where, again, Moritz Sider was drafted out of, um, and you go, how is this kid this good already? Um, you know, when you look at these guys who are first year, or I should, I should say, in their draft eligible season, Stutzel at .83 points per game, that's the best mark of any player ever in this league. Um, granted, not a lot of high-quality NHL players have come out of there because the next names are a couple of guys that people might be familiar with, and Marcel Gotch and, and Marco Sturm, who are the two names right behind him. But Stutzel at .83 is doing this uh, as a draft-eligible player, best marks ever uh, in the DEL, and it's, again, been a league that's gotten a lot better. We're already seeing that from Moritz Sider, who, you know, when he was coming out, there's a lot of stories talking about he could barely get a handful of minutes of ice time um, in that league, and you've got Stutzel going out and embarrassing people on a nightly basis. So I think he's definitely, you know, a great guy to have in that uh, three spot. I think for me, obviously, and, and everyone who's been listening for this whole time, I have to say Marco Rossi. I think there's a legitimate chance that Rossi is the second best player from this draft class when we look back at it uh, 10 years from now. He's got 120 points in 56 games played. He's had an absolutely phenomenal season. Uh, if you read Scott Wheeler's report on um, Marco Rossi a couple of weeks back where people uh, talked about Rossi's game, I mean, there was a quote, he's the best guy at even strength. He's the best guy on the power play. He's the best guy on the penalty kill. He's our best face-off man. He does everything good. Uh, there's no deficiency in his game. This isn't your stereotypical small player that you're worried about getting overmatched defensively 
and may not be able to keep up with all aspects of the game, and that's why this player should slip. Marco Rossi, yes, he is five foot nine, but he does not play small. He he has the ability to impact every facet of the game. And really, when I was hearing about him and reading those quotes um, from Wheeler's article, all that came to mind is that Dylan Larkin work ethic. Like he is going to hound you, fight nonstop. He's going to compete, and the and to boot, he's scoring at one of the best levels we've ever seen in the OHL. So, all that being said, I I can't I can't pull Rossi out of out of that third spot. I think that's fair. No, and one thing that I'm very interested in about Rossi is you know he seems like for a five foot nine player to have about as secure a floor as I could imagine just because of all the reasons you just mentioned like it almost feels like you you, you look at the the company that he's in and obviously you can never expect someone to be a Patrick Kane or a Connor McDavid but the other name who's in that tier is Sam Gagne and I was thinking about it and isn't Sam Gagne kind of his floor at this point yeah I mean I think Sam Gagne is your floor and, and Gagne is a guy that again you know a lot of people are going to knock him just based on where he was taken in the uh, in the draft, being in the first round, and I think he was sixth overall when he went in 2007. Yep. I mean, he didn't. He's not had a bad career. I mean, number nope. one, he's still in the league 13 years after he's drafted. But you're talking about a guy who's had multiple seasons. I think he's had uh, seven seasons with more than 40 points, which, again, you're talking about better than a half point per game played. And he did a lot of that in a really poor Edmonton team. Uh, that was looking f- to basically try and find its way. And so I, I don't think Sam Gagne is a bad floor whatsoever. I think he's a, he's really a great floor. And if you're trying to say, I'm going to walk away with at least Sam Gagne, you know, you're, you're not going to be that upset. Now you might be disappointed if you're picking third and you're taking, you know, Rossi there and you're saying, okay, I, I only ended up with Sam Gagne, but I really think that's the lowest you're going to end up with. And, and truth be told, he, you know, you could certainly end up with something a lot more depending on the situation oh, yeah. that that, that player walks into. Cause again, you know, the names you threw out when you're talking about Marco Rossi, I mean, he's seventh all time for draft eligible scoring, uh, for draft eligible players in terms of points per game. And the guys that are ahead of him are guys like Eric Lindros, Connor McDavid, and Patrick Kane. Uh, are really the top one, two, three, and Rossi's just a couple of spots behind those guys. So um, really, really impressive stuff. I mean, he's ahead of guys like Jason Spezza, Joe Thornton, um, you know, Mitch Marner, a lot of other guys. So I, I really think you have a, the potential at landing a special player there. Yeah, one of my favorite things about draft season is often when there's a short player uh, like last year was Cole Caulfield, the people were saying like, well, if he was three inches taller, none of this would be a problem. And, you know, three inches kind of matters. But genuinely, if Marco Rossi was one inch taller, I don't think there would be any doubt about his place in the top five. And one inch, I am ready to write off very quickly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I have no problems writing that off. I think, you know, if you're a Red Wings fan, you look at a guy like Steve Eiserman, I think he was technically 5'10", is how he's listed. Yeah. So if you're telling me that you have a problem with Steve Eiserman being able to, you know, come in and score for you, well then we have an entirely different conversation we need to have. So I, I am completely ready to write off the one inch because of the quote that was in Wheeler's article saying he doesn't play like a small player. He's gonna hound you and he's gonna be everywhere. Now, with all of that said, there is a player who we haven't talked about who could very easily sneak up high because the top defenseman 
always seems to sneak up high. I believe it's every draft class since I think 2003. I could be off by a year, give or take. A defenseman has gone in the top five. So this year's top defenseman is Jamie Drysdale from Erie. Where would you put Jamie Drysdale? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And these are the guys that, that tend to make the draft difficult to evaluate. I mean, last year you had, you know, Bowen Byram really sneak up. You know, in years prior, you've had defensemen go first overall and, and really in those top five. To me, you know, Drysdale, he scores well. He's a good player, but I don't think he's in the same tier as some of the guys that we've just talked about. I also have the kind of, in my mind, uh, a philosophy ingrained that defensemen do not impact the game at the same level as a forward. Um, and so with all of that being said, uh, I'm just not ready to take Jamie Drysdale and elevate him above a guy like Marco Rossi, above a Tim Stutzel, above a Cole Perfetti, above, you know, a, a Lucas Raymond, above, and you know, even an Alexander Holt. To me, I, I, I have a difficult spot doing that um and you know when you look at drysdale again defensive we have basically data telling us that defensemen that score well are the ones that tend to make the nhl um that's very clear but when you look at his points per game scoring in the ohl as a draft eligible player you know he's 23rd all time but you look at some of the names around him and it's guys like cam fowler michael delzato paul mara you know bobby sanguinetti Rasmus Anderson, Cody Cece, uh, those are really the guys that are literally clustered right around him. And, and you know, a couple guys ahead of him, Nick Boynton, Zach Bogosian, Trevor Daly. If I'm talking about those guys potentially being a floor for Drysdale, which, again, that may not even be fair to say, um, versus a guy like Marco Rossi, who I'm telling, you know, thinking that a floor is Sam Gagne, I would definitely, definitely, definitely take the Marco Rossi player uh, so to me, I just have a lot of concerns about the, how much Drysdale is going to be able to uh, impact the game at the same level as some of the forwards this season. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's a fair concern. I will say the defensive scoring thing, the defensive scoring point, like they all, you have to adjust to the fact that they are still defensemen. So if he's scoring at a really high rate now. Uh, I do think that's going to translate. I think the skill set that you've seen from Drysdale shows that he can play, uh, you know, he played the World Juniors as, a, as an under-18 player. Uh, he can play above his head a little bit. That's a good sign. It wouldn't surprise me if he gets drafted in the top five, but I tend to agree with you that it's going to be tough uh, to take him necessarily over some of those other forwards that are there. And when you talk about some of these Swedish guys, I think Raymond is the guy that a lot of our listeners certainly uh, seem to gravitate toward. But I just wanted to point out in a in an all-time kind of points-per-game basis how strong a season uh, that Alexander Holtz is having. I mean, I think he's at .46 points per game. Not a lot of of, uh, of under-18 players have done that before. Rasmus Dahlin did it a couple years ago, and he went number one overall as a defenseman. Well-deserved. Uh, a couple guys I'm not as familiar with, Nicholas Sundstrom, Thomas Janssen, uh, Robert Nilsson. But then the other guys, you know, Marcus Nasland is in that category. Peter Forsberg he's, is well above. He's .74. Uh, but there's just not that many names here. Patrick Erickson, he's from the 80s. Just uh, not many guys as an under-18 player have ever put up that level of production in the SHL. 
Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that up. I think uh, one of the interesting facts and one of the reasons why a lot of people who follow the draft closely may gravitate towards Lucas Raymond is one of the leagues that we get some of the more advanced data on is the SHL. We actually have Corsi data for the SHL. And, you know, when you when you look at Lucas Raymond, one of the things that really stinks for Raymond is he just never got a lot of ice time. Uh, he yeah. was a guy that averaged about 10 to 11 minutes of ice time per game in the SHL. So his counting stats, things like, you know, his overall points, they're not going to look outstanding relative to some of the other guys in the class. But when you go and you actually look at some of his Corsi numbers, the guy for most of the season sat around 60% Corsi 4. And again, remember, Corsi is uh, looking at all shots taken. So shots on goal, missed shots, block shots, and looking at that for the ones that happen for your team versus those that happen against your team and kind of looking at what percentage of those shots um, are taken by your team when that player's on the ice. So 60% is an outstanding mark. 60% is a Pavel Datsuk territory when you're looking at him in the NHL. Uh, so for Raymond to be around there, even in his limited ice time, is really, really interesting and really, really exciting. Holtz, on the other hand, you know, I don't have his number right in front of me, but I remember initially speak, uh, looking at this back in November, his numbers were actually much, much lower in that regard. And so there is a little bit of a concern about Holtz from a defensive standpoint. Uh, that being said, I think that's where a lot of the excitement about Raymond comes from. He's also a big winger. He's a real good yeah. player overall. I think he's a guy that's going to look a lot better than his counting stats when you watch him. And that's why it's... Oh, it's and certainly to... watching them. Yeah. Yeah. Raymond jumps off the ice more. I've seen him live. Raymond definitely watching him jumps off the ice more. Yeah. And so he's he's just a... He's a player that I think rightly so belongs in that conversation for third. And coming into this draft, I think McKean's actually had Raymond over Byfield. Um, mm. And so... I think it's very much so. And so when you're throwing all those names in there, that's why I have a hard time taking Jamie Drysdale in that same bucket. To me, Drysdale's around 9 or 10. Um, whether that's right or wrong, I think that's kind of where I drop him to. I think I'd probably have him 6 or 7. But, uh, yeah, either way, right, like behind those those names that we've just gotten into. So, uh, yeah, moving into the next uh, category, here's a good one. So let's pull up Bob McKenzie's mid-season list, which tends to be kind of one of the more predictive uh, lists of where guys will actually be drafted. McKenzie's not necessarily like a prospect expert, but when he, he kind of pulls scouts, I think that gives you a pretty good amalgamation of, of what the what the consensus is a, is a rough word because every team's going to have their own. There's not going to be a one true consensus, but the closest thing to it that you're going to have for where guys will be drafted. So I want you to pull that up. Uh, and tell me who is the player projected in the top 10 you would be least comfortable drafting. And actually, I'm going to off the top, shorten it to the top nine. I'm not going to let you cop out and say Askarov. All right. Well, then at nine, so looking just for those who have not seen the list before, uh, McKenzie's top 10 is Alexi Lafreniere, Quentin Byfield, Tim Stutzel, Jamie Drysdale at four, Lucas Raymond, Alexander Holtz, Rossi at seven, Perfetti at eight, Jake Sanderson, who's in the USHL. He's a defenseman at nine. Yaroslav Askarov at 10. Hands down, the guy I want no part of it in the top 10 is Jake Sanderson. Uh, I think Sanderson is a, is extraordinarily overrated in a weak league. Uh, and I do not want any part of him in the top 10. And I think I'd probably say I don't want any part of him in the top 20. Uh, so he's the guy that right now that I don't think 
If I'm if I'm a team drafting the top ten, I am all hands away from Jake Sanderson. I don't know if I if I can say no part in the top twenty. That's a pretty harsh harsh come down. I mean, that's just where I'm at right now. If you look at you know some of the other guys, there's a lot of other defensemen I would rather take over Jake Sanderson right now, even though that this is a weak defensive group. I'm still looking at guys like Braden Schneider. I'm still looking at Justin Barron. I'm still looking at William Wallander uh, in that same threshold as Sanderson. And, and to me, there's nothing that really separates his game uh, from those guys. And, and, and at that point, I don't want him in the top 10. All right. That's fair. Uh, I, I would agree he's the guy in the top 10. I'm probably the least comfortable drafting in the top 10 after that i think it would be perfetti but now we're just going in reverse order so (laughs) basically yeah no i think that's fair you know i I think especially to me the drop-off happens there after the i know most people have said it's kind of an eight or nine uh tier at the at the top or you know i guess it's a tier of one and then a tier of one and then a tier of six or something but um to me i like those top seven the best i like uh, Lafreniere, Byfield, Stutzla, Raymond, Holtz, Drysdale. To me, there's a little bit of a cutoff there. I don't know why on Perfetti. I, I know he's scored absolutely insane levels since basically the World Juniors. Uh, I'm just not quite on the same level with him as I am with some of the other plot prospects. Yeah, I mean, Perfetti's a tough one to evaluate because from the World Juniors on, the guy was arguably right there with Marco Rossi in terms of scoring, and he's really rocketed his way up. Um, he's a guy that I am actually quite comfortable taking in the top seven. I think he has the talent. He belongs in that conversation. And with the way he finished this season, I think you absolutely have to consider him um, in that bracket. It's just, again, right now, I think it's a very forward-heavy um, draft, particularly in the top ten. And, and that's where I think you want to stay away from those defensemen. Because if you're picking in the top ten and you have the ability to take one of these forwards – I think you're in position to, um, you know, do a really good job. But hypothetically speaking, you know, not everyone's going to be able to be in the top 10. And, and there are some teams that want to sneak into the latter half of the first round or, or may have picks only in the early part of the second. Is there anybody in, in McKenzie's kind of 20 to 30 or 20 to 40 range that you think is going to really surprise people and kind of shoot up and, and be a really talented player? Surprise them on draft day or with what they do once they're in the NHL. What they do once they're in the NHL. Basically, guys who you think are, are a little underrated at this point. And when, you know, we, we see this every year. There's a guy that goes in the 20s and you're like, okay. And then all of a sudden, three years out, the guy's having an outstanding season. And you're going, wow, how did this guy get missed? And so I think in that 20 to 30, 20 to 40 range, is there anybody that you're kind of having your eyes on saying, hey, if, if someone's picking in the latter part of the first round or early second round and you have the chance to jump on one of these guys, this is who I would jump on. Yeah, I mean, Lucas Reichel, to me, out of Berlin, would be one of those players. Uh, J.J. Paterka, I think, is at 20. Uh, those are two guys, you know, but I'm sure a lot of people are, are thinking that who have who are listening to this show because everyone watched the same Team Germany games at the World Juniors when both of those two players looked pretty strong. They both also had two really strong DEL seasons that may be kind of getting glossed over at how historically uh, good those were in, in relation to what, you know, under, you know, draft eligible players have historically been able to do in the DEL. That, I think, is part of a broader movement. You're just going to see more 
young players get those minutes in the DEL, which is going to be great for German hockey and, and really great for uh, for the draft because you'll you'll have a little bit more insight into into those guys when you're finally ready to draft them. Those are two guys I would point to. I know one of our listeners, Lars, is going to want me to say Helga, uh, I think it's Helga, Helga Granz from Malmo. He's technically 41, so just outside the range I'm allowed to pick from here. Uh, I have not seen him, but obviously, you know, Lars has, has been in my ear about uh, his potential to rise uh, as well. So those are some names I would throw out. Yeah, I think there's a, those are great names. I mean, obviously, Reichel, you know, we mentioned earlier that Stutzel was first overall in terms of points per game for a draft-eligible player. I said second was Marcel Gotch. Uh, you know, third, um, I can't even remember who was third at that point. But all that being said, Lucas Reichel was fourth. And so Reichel yep. and Paterka are guys that are getting, you know, slightly overshadowed by how good Stutzel's been. But I think when you saw Germany play at the World Juniors, you saw the skill level of Reichel and Paterka. And again, you shouldn't put a lot of weight into one international tournament. Um, but all that being said, I think Reichel and Paterka are two guys who could definitely surprise. I think a couple other names I'm going to throw out. Uh, Noel Gundler as again, a guy that's kind of flown under the radar relative to Alexander Holtz and Lucas Raymond. Gundler's over in the SHL. He's getting a little bit more ice time than, than Raymond. Uh, he certainly cooled off over the, the last little bit of the season here, but he's a guy that's high skill, high potential. I think he has the chance, you know, really the opportunity to really surprise a lot of people, um, you know, moving forward after draft day. And then the other guy I'll throw out is, is Maverick Bork, who's in the queue right now. Um, again, he's everybody in the queue has really been overshadowed by, you know, Alexi Lafreniere, but, but Bork has played 49 games. He's got 71 points. Uh, he's playing really, really well. He's a center. Again, he's a little bit on the smaller side at 5'10", 165 pounds. But I think he's a guy that if he's there late, in the first round or even early in the second round, um, he's a guy that's got a lot of talent could, to do a lot of damage offensively. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let me ask you this. Of the CHL players, who loses the most with the canceled season? Whose draft stock is going to, could have risen the most that, uh, that now won't? Yeah, I mean, this it's really, really tough because you know when you loot, when you suspend those CHL seasons, obviously you're you're missing out on Memorial Cup action. I think you're missing out on all of the different playoffs within the different respective leagues. Uh, I think you know really universally a lot of players are are affected here, but I think some of the guys that are just not going to be able to make those jumps are the guys that potentially could have shined on on the good teams that would have gone on deeper, deeper runs. Um, in the Q and, and, and in the OHL and, and in the WHL. And so I think, uh, you know, one guy that potentially has been uh, a little bit overshadowed is Connor Zari, who's playing in the WHL right now. Uh, he's a guy that I don't know there's been a lot of coverage on him. And, and if he had the opportunity to maybe play a little bit more, um, he's playing out in Cam Loops right now. I think he's a guy that could, um, you know, have had a good – potential playoffs and, and potentially surprise a few people there. But outside of that, I'm not really sure that there's any one player that's disproportionately affected. I think from my standpoint, it's more the guys that were on good teams, they're not they're just not going to be able to to show out in these playoffs and in the Memorial Cup and it's going to ultimately lead to them maybe not getting as much attention as they should. Yeah, no, I think that's a good one. The guy that came to mind for this 
right away for me is Jan Mishak. Uh, he came over from the Czech Republic mid-season to the OHL, was putting up a little better than a point a game. I think it, the more that he was able to keep going, if he could have continued at that same rate, maybe even upped it just a little bit uh, over a slightly larger and larger sample size, that could have really helped his stock. Uh, he's a guy who, in the Bob McKenzie list at mid-season, was like in the 50s. Uh, that, to me, is a guy who, who should be who should be going higher than that. I mean, he's 5'10 and a half, so maybe the people are a little worried about that uh but obviously a guy who i think with more sample could have could have jumped up a little bit yeah i mean he's a guy that i mean he had a five point first period uh in one of his first right. games in the over in north america so he's a guy that very clearly has a lot of skill very high level um he's a guy that again if you saw more of him in north america you probably would have gone wow there's no way that guy should be in the 50s but we'll we'll see at draft time he's certainly a guy that i think is a first round talent for sure yeah. And then last thing before we get to some of the questions, second or third round talent that you think could have a significant impact? Yeah, I mean, if we're using McKenzie's list, obviously you have to think about, you know, Meshach there. Uh, I think another guy that on McKenzie's list that I'd like to point out is, is Roni Hervonen, who's a, a forward playing over in Finland's top league right now uh, in Liga. I think he's a guy that's got a lot of talent. Some people have had him in the first round. Um, you know, if you look at elite prospects rankings, I think they've got him at 25th overall um, from their February ranking. I think he's a guy that's got a lot of talent, um, real good scorer, plays well um, overall. I think he's a guy that could have big impact if he's available late in the second round as, as Bob McKenzie's list makes it seem like he'll be. Yeah. The guy who jumps out to me is at the very back of the list, number 61, Jan Kuznetsov of the University of Connecticut. Very interesting case. You do not often see a 17-year-old play in the NCAA before even being drafted. Sometimes you'll see it with some uh, some of the U18 uh, NTDP kids. They'll go play college in their draft year. Dylan Holloway did it uh, this year for Wisconsin. Um, I think Zach Wierenski. Did Zach Wierenski do that? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, either way, 17-year-old playing in CAA, that is kind of interesting to me. He didn't have a crazy productive season, 11 points in 34 games, but played the full season as a 17-year-old, which I don't think is too common. Uh, you know, not crazy production, but just for, for reference, like Cam York, who was a first-round pick last year, 16 points in 30 games at the University of Michigan this year. So uh, that kind of catches my eye a little bit. I don't know, you know, maybe that's something that with the Red Wings, one of the one of their – second round picks that they traded for uh, in the back half of the second round. That could be something to uh, to consider. Yeah, so you're absolutely right on Wierenski. It looks like he was for, uh, he was eighth overall in 2015, and his 2014-2015 season was freshman year at the University of Michigan. So, yeah, I think uh, that's a great example. Yeah, so, and obviously I'm not saying he's going to be a Wierenski. I mean, Wierenski was a top 10 pick and kind of a no-doubter in that way, right? Like, he had already... Uh, played pretty well, uh, and he, you know, 25 points in 35 games in his draft year. So that's a really strong season. But nonetheless, you know, I just think it's, it's something that's worth, uh, worth paying a little bit of attention to for, for Kuznetsov and a guy who hopefully that means teams will have already seen him against some of the higher level, tougher competition that usually drafting a kid out of like, you know, junior hockey doesn't always give you that same, what are they going to look like against men? So. Yeah. Just just a little bit, you know, lessens the information gap, and obviously you've seen that they can progress at a young age, which seems to have been something the Red Wings have, have enjoyed uh, with more cider, obviously different situations, but nonetheless. Absolutely. All right, uh, you call for the questions today. What stood out to you? 
A lot of questions kind of slanted towards the draft as I as I tip my hat that way, but there's a couple I want to tackle before we get into those. So, you know, one question that uh, you know, really stood out to me as an interesting one is uh, from Todd Timmer, who asked us, which line graded out better? Was it the 2018-2019 line of Tyler Bertuzzi, Dylan Larkin, Gustav Nyquist, or was it this season's line of Tyler Bertuzzi, Dylan Larkin, and Anthony Manta. You know, Max, in your two years of covering the beat, I don't know, did you did you feel that that 2018-2019 line had the same impact as the Bertuzzi-Larkin-Manta line this season? Um, I, I remember Nyquist was grading out so well um, up to the point where they traded him, so it would not surprise me if that's pretty close. Nyquist had a really good year last year. I, I think the fact that, you know, he was in kind of the Athanasiu boat in terms of basically the whole year, everyone was just talking about how much the Red Wings could or couldn't get for him in a trade, allowed that to get washed over. Like every good thing he did was, was framed just in terms of great, trade him, trade him, right? Um, but he had a really strong year. I think that was close to a career year for Nyquist. Yeah, I mean, Nyquist was outstanding last season, and ultimately that's why he ended up getting moved. I mean, that line combination of Larkin, Bertuzzi, and Nyquist, they played together um, not as much as the Bertuzzi-Larkin-Manta line. That, that line played uh, about 170 minutes together at 5-on-5. Five five. But looking at their stats, I mean, their 5-on-5 five five Corsi 4 percentage was 58.3%, which, again, is outstanding. Uh, their expected goals for percentage, and this is from natural stat tricks, so the model is slightly different than what you see at Evolving Hockey or Money Puck. Uh, they were at 55.2% there. So, again, a really, really strong line that played really, really well together. Ultimately didn't play together as much as, uh, you know, Bertuzzi, Larkin, and Manta this season. Uh, I think when you look at that line this season... What you'll basically see is the Bertuzzi, Larkin, Manta line played 315 minutes together, uh, slightly worse Corsi 4 percentage, 53.2%, and slightly worse expected goals 4 percentage at 52.8. I think both of those are a product of the fact that the wings this season were a lot worse than they were last year. Um, but to me, I, I would kind of take the Larkin, Manta, Bertuzzi line just given the how much they were leaned on this season and, and really the yeah. talent disparity between them and the rest of the team versus that Nyquist, Larkin, Bertuzzi line last year um, versus the rest of the team. Yeah, well, what you get with the Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi line is number one, a better goal scorer, uh, and number two, and obviously in Mantha, and number two, a more mature Bertuzzi, who I think took his game up another bit, uh, another level. And obviously, I think Mantha. Pretty impactful defensive player too, with with the length and the ability to disrupt plays. So I'm going with the Larkin Mantha Bertuzzi line, but I just think you know peop, it might be easy for people to forget how good Gustav Nyquist was uh, in Detroit last season. Yeah, I mean, I think people just have to remember he was a guy that very quietly flew under the radar. I think uh, if we get a few years down the road and, and you go back and you review those Red Wings teams of really the 2013 to 2018 Red Wings teams, you're going to realize that uh, people didn't appreciate Thomas Tatar and Gustav Nyquist as much as they should have, um, given how good both of those players were, how much they impacted the game in, in all facets. And a lot of that had to do with when both of those guys were coming up, the early comparison was these are the next Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg. And I felt like for years they were judged 
in that shadow. And so when Thomas Tatar was not the same player as Pavel Datsyuk, when Gustav Nyquist was not the same player as Henrik Zetterberg, you know, they kind of got painted in a little bit more of an unfair light, I think, by fans. And we have to recognize how good both of those players were. I mean, Thomas Tatar was almost a point-per-game player this season, and Gustav Nyquist has still been, you know, an outstanding player, um, you know, over in Columbus. So I think both of those guys were great talents, had great impacts, and taking those guys off the team over the last two years is a large part of the reason why the Wings ended up where they were this season. Yep. Yep, I think that's a fair point. All right, so then next questions. There's a handful of questions here about how we think the draft lottery is going to be uh, changed. You know, there's Hunter Saunders asking, do they go in reverse order? Will they do a 31-team lottery? I think a lot of this is predicated on the fact that there was a post by TSN uh, suggesting that there would be a 24-team playoff um, based on what Darren Dreger had heard. Uh, Scott Oddish, I believe is how you say that, said, do you think they'll – um, if the league went to that, how would that affect the draft lotto? So, Max, I'm just curious at your thoughts here. How do you think the draft lottery is going to shape up? Are they going to go in that reverse standings order? Or if they go to this 2014 playoff, how is that going to affect the lottery? I think it's probably fluid. I will say I don't think reverse standings alone, as much as the Red Wings would love for it to happen, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, it, it's just a situation where the, if the lottery is in place to prevent tanking, like maybe it's a, maybe it's a extenuating circumstance, but you know, I think you'd have a really tough time, uh, selling that, that as the solution when the lottery is not something that's like requires a, a giant event to, to make happen. Now, obviously they, the way they've done it gets a lot of people together, but in theory it doesn't have to. So I'm curious what happens with the lottery, though. Like, I think if there's, you know, in the same way I said, if there's an expanded playoff, uh, you know, maybe every every team who's still in the lottery gets their odds upped. If there's no playoff at all, like, let's say the season is just done, like, why should, why should I guess Anaheim technically has Boston's pick, but let's say St. Louis or Washington, two of the top teams in the league, why should they not get some lottery odds? They didn't get the playoffs either. Yeah, I mean, if, if you go to that 2014 lottery and those teams don't, don't come out, you know, in the final 16 playoffs or whatever. I mean, it's it's going to be really, really weird how this works out. And and truth be told, like, if you go to this 24-team playoff, uh, um, where I'm at is, like, you should completely revamp the lottery odds to really slant yeah. the weight to those bottom eight teams. None of the other teams should end up with um, lottery odds, from my opinion, because you, you had the opportunity to play for the playoffs versus... Exactly. Uh, versus the other eight teams. And so the interesting piece here is, you know, you and I had tossed out, would Montreal or Chicago say no thanks, I'd rather be in the lottery as opposed to having the opportunity to play in? Well, 24 teams encompasses Montreal. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, does, does Montreal even want to be in that situation where they have the opportunity to play in versus uh, being able to participate in the draft lottery? So I think... All in all, this is a very fluid situation. I don't know that there's an elegant answer here. I think however it's determined, to me the thing that that's cleanest is you just end the regular season now, you, you take teams on points percentage, and you do you keep the lottery the same based on points percentage. Uh, to me that seems like you're changing the fewest amount of things possible, but uh, you know we'll see what the NHL does. I guess the one point you could make if you're arguing for reverse order standings is if everything is done 
Like, there's no more playoffs, no more anything like this. They're just saying, you know, try again next year. The one point you could make is no one obviously could have planned for this and tanked with this in mind still. That, I guess, is the only argument you have in your favor and that things are just so, you know, usually the way they do the lotteries, they have representatives from a certain number of teams. I think there was, I believe there was a Red Wings representative in there last year. I don't remember. Um, In the room where the balls are being drawn, right, so that there's no – Everyone knows there's no foul play, there's no rigging, anything like that. Like a certain number of teams have representatives uh, and, and are watching these ping pong balls be drawn. So to me, I think that is what makes you know makes it work. And uh, in terms of trust, and if you can't have you know even five or six people in a room, I guess maybe you're arguing for the drawing. But uh, I think at that point you kind of are just waiting, right? Yeah. No, I mean I completely agree. It's it's going to be a really, really weird situation uh, moving forward. And and honestly, I think all of us are just guessing here. I think the NHL probably has no idea because it's all predicated on when they're able to come back, uh, if they're able to come back. So um, I guess more information to come. But for now, who knows what's going to happen with the lottery or the rest of the season. Yeah. Let's get to two more questions, then we'll let everybody go. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so one is kind of examining the, the Red Wings goaltending situation. It's from, from Adam Flett. I think they, you know, he's asking, could and should the Red Wings target Jake Allen as a short-term goalie solution? Because uh, he kind of justifies this by saying the, the Wings could free up space for St. Louis by taking him. And then as a thank you, get a pick. Uh, who, which team says no? So, Max, if the, if the Wings take on Jake Allen, and, and let's say the, the Blues are willing to throw in a pick, even though, as you and I have talked about, they're, they're kind of pretty sparse for draft picks at this point, uh, is that a deal the Wings should entertain, or, or is that a deal that St. Louis would even consider making? Uh, I guess it depends. I don't think Jake Allen is anybody's goalie solution at this point. I guess he had an okay year this year, though. Uh, wow, 927, that's very good. If that's the case, though, like if you're framing him as a goalie solution and you're saying that you're making this trade because he had a 927 save percentage and, you know, 21 starts this year, then they're not throwing in a pick to get rid of him, even though the contract is what it is. It's, I think he's over $5 million. Uh, I just, you know, the Red Wings, could they take on Jake Allen? Sure. And if they're going to get something out of it, then I think that's a great idea. Um, I don't think he's certainly going to be any, uh, any worse than Jimmy Howard is, uh, had, or, uh, you know, in, in terms of this season. But, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to pay for Jake Allen, especially, I think, oh, 4.35 is the contract. So I have a hard time thinking that St. Louis is going to attach something to that. And if you're going to have to give something up, I don't think that's worth doing for the Red Wings. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's pretty tough because if you look at St. Louis, I mean, this season, they're already without their second round pick, their sixth round pick, their seventh round pick. In 2021, they're without their second-round pick and their seventh-round pick. They do have an extra fifth in 2020, but do you take on $4.35 million in a, as a goaltender uh, for a fifth-round pick, uh, even a fourth-round pick? A goaltender who's 29, who you're probably not going to, to re-sign. He's not part of your long-term solution in, in that regard, given he's already 29 years of age. He's probably not a guy you're going to lock up as, as a long-term piece. Uh, you know, I I don't know because if if St. Louis isn't really willing to part with uh, a first or a third, I don't know that Jake Allen is the right guy to target. And again, you also have to wonder: Can Allen even be serviceable behind 
the Red Wings defense as it is. I mean, you're talking about a team in St. Louis that is absolutely loaded on the defensive end. I mean, when you're talking about Alex Petrangelo, Colton Pareko, you know, Justin Falk, uh, Marco Scandella, Vince Dunn, Bortuzzo. I mean, that's, that's a really strong defense. I mean, arguably five of those guys are better than anybody Detroit's got. Uh, I don't know that Allen is also going to be as successful in, in Detroit, and I don't think he's any part of the long-term future. So I think if St. Louis isn't willing to give you um, or pay a steep price to get out of here um, with a uh, to get out of that contract, then I, I just don't see the Wings being willing to do that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that's a good that's a good take on it. All right, so last one we'll do a little bit of a fun one, and I'm going to kind of stretch your your hockey history knowledge here, Max. So, oh god, um, we've got Todd in Southwest Detroit asking who goes first in an all time NHL draft. Uh, he says based on statistics, but I'll kind of open it up to you in, in general. Who do you think who would be the first guy you take in an all time NHL draft? Let's presume you are drafting the player and they are in their prime. I mean, is Gretzky, like, too easy? It's Gretzky or Mario Lemieux, one of those two. I think two, that's probably. fair. I think that's fair. I mean, I think the the simple answer here is, well, you, you look at Wayne Gretzky based on stats and say, this is a guy that I'm absolutely drafting. I mean, he was you, – you take away all of his goals, and he still has more points than anybody else. I mean, that's like – Lemieux had a 199-point season. <laughs> right. Right, and so then when you look at Mario, you say, well, you know, prior to him coming back, um, I believe when he came back in 2000, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, prior to him coming back at that point, the guy had a two points per game average. Like, he was absolutely unstoppable, um, you know, in his regard. I think the other name, you know, outside of those two that you have to enter into that conversation is Dominic Hasek. Um, and that's simply because he was... I think if you're taking the player and you're looking at them relative to the other players at their position, I think Dominic Hasek is better than the second best goalie by a lot more than Gretzky is better than the second best forward or Lemieux is better than the second best forward, depending on who you're going to put there first. And better than or and I think it's more than what or is above, you know, Nick Lidstrom. I think Hasek, you know, for a period in time was uh, he was in another league. He was in another galaxy. He took really, really bad Buffalo Sabres teams to the playoffs consistently and took a really bad Buffalo Sabres team to the Stanley Cup Finals and came within a foot in the crease uh, of potentially being able to win the Stanley Cup. So he's a guy that belongs in that conversation simply because uh, there has been nobody like, there is nobody like him and there will never be anybody else like him. Um, I mean, to really add to the shock value, there was a season where Hashik had a 930 save percentage. I believe it's 94 or 9394. Uh, when the league average was 895. So like his save percentage is three and a half percent better than the league average. Like you're talking about, you know, there's nobody in that in that atmosphere. So I think he's the other guy that belongs in the conversation with Gretzky and Lemieux simply because of how much better he was than than everybody else. Make a note: Wednesday, March eighteenth, twelve twenty eight p.m. Prashanth took a goalie first overall. You're darn right. After I just said several episodes back, never draft a goalie. I could take Dominic Hasek first overall in an all time draft. 
over Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. Absolutely. I just want to make a note of it. Yeah. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Make the note. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for uh, hanging in there with us. Thanks for still uh, tuning in during all the craziness. We'll be back at you on Monday with another episode. Stay healthy out there. Stay safe. Talk to you then.